Well, let's prepare our hearts in prayer as we, before we open up God's Word. That is precious song, precious words, that there is a Redeemer, your own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah. How we love to sing those words because of the truth contained in them of the forgiveness of our sin, of the demonstration of your great love for us who are sinners. And I do pray that those words would be the meditation of our heart. But even more that the very words that we'll hear from your own lips, as it were, on the pages of Scripture, would be the meditation of our heart as we prepare to come together to celebrate the supper that you instituted so long ago to remind us of the great truths of our redemption and the coming realities of our salvation as well as the present ones. Will you, Spirit of God, open our heart and our minds to receive from the pages of Scripture the words as the words of God which they are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. As we continue in this Great gospel given to us by the Holy Spirit, penned by the apostle or the disciple Matthew. This morning we come to verses 17 through 19 in chapter 20. And as you're turning there, let me note that this is now the third prediction of our Lord about his coming death and resurrection. The time of his departure is growing nearer and nearer. And he's preparing his disciples for the tragic events that are soon to take place. And as he does this, he displays the incredible grace of God towards us, who are his redeemed, his children, his incredible grace in the Lord Jesus Christ in accomplishing our salvation. In the words of Paul, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the words of the hymn writer, we sung this morning during Sunday school, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were the stalk on every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, Though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. That, I hope, is the expression of your own heart as you contemplate the redemption that you have received in the Lord Jesus Christ and the incredible grace that He has displayed to us in Him. Now this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want to consider our passage this morning less as a sermon and more as a meditation on the great grace of God in Christ, who is both our example and the one who has accomplished our salvation for us. And this meditation then will follow along these lines. We'll note three ways that Jesus demonstrates His perfect righteousness in accomplishing our salvation. So I'm going to read the passage and then we'll consider these three points. Read with me 
verses 17 through 19 of Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, He will be raised up. Before we look at these more closely, let me remind you of the context. Jesus has been laboring to teach us what faith in life in the kingdom looks like. He's made clear that to be in the kingdom is to be willing to give up every earthly pleasure to follow Him and to be obedient to the service that He calls us to. He said that it is a humble faith back in 19 verse, chapter 19, verse 13 or 14. He says, Let the children alone, do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, faith and life in the kingdom is humble, it is dependent, it is an obedient faith. He reminded us that life in the kingdom and faith in the kingdom is to abandon everything to gain Christ. We saw this negatively in the rich young ruler whom Jesus said you must sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow me. He was unwilling to do that. We saw it positively in the life of the disciples in verse 27 when Peter announces with truth that we have left everything and followed you. And that is what life in the kingdom is like. It's abandoning everything to follow Christ and to gain the kingdom. It is to place your life completely into the care of the Father and of Jesus in perfect submission to His will. And, as Peter's statement identifies, they had done that to some level. To some level, they had abandoned everything to follow Christ. But the reality is that they still had a somewhat distorted view of the kingdom. They still largely thought of the kingdom in terms of earthly glory, in terms of its earthly presence. Now, in fact, the kingdom was here and the kingdom would be established. And as he said in verse 28 of chapter 19, these 12 or 11 of them, Judas to be replaced by Matthias, would sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. But that would not happen before the tragic events of the cross. Their present conception of the kingdom needs to be shattered and then corrected. They need to understand that there is suffering before there is reward. He gave them the parable in chapter 20 that said that some will, in fact, bear the scorching heat of the day and bear the burden of the day. And the disciples would fit into that category. There was much that they would suffer for the kingdom, though they little understood that at this point. Jesus wants to prepare them then for these coming events. And He wants to help them understand not only what they need to be prepared for, but the very nature of His ministry as Messiah and the nature of life in the kingdom. The same life that they and all who are called are to embrace, and that is to follow Jesus no matter where He goes. So let's note then here a first a demonstration, a first demonstration of this life of Christ that is both our example and the, and the accomplishment of our salvation. Look at verse 17. 
in verse 17. I want you to just notice the first phrase there. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And you can stop there. This is really a tremendous, tremendous statement. And in fact, this should have been a statement of joy to them. A statement of elation. Jerusalem was, after all, described as the city of God, for example, in Psalm 87.3. Jerusalem was, in fact, the center of worship designated by God Himself. The center of worship for the people of God. It is where the temple was. It is where the priesthood performed their functions as they received the sacrifices and offered them up to God. And in fact, many were en route near the words of Jesus here in Matthew 20, to go up to celebrate the Passover meal. It was a time of remembrance of God's great deliverance of His people. A time when God redeemed His people before all of the nations from the bondage of Egypt. So the fact that they were going up to Jerusalem should have been a statement of joy, a statement of happiness, a statement of celebration. But it wasn't. Instead, it was going to be a place... Not where they celebrated God, but where the people of God would murder their God and put Him to death. Now let me note here that the Jews commonly spoke of going up to Jerusalem simply because of its elevation. It was 2,500 feet above sea level, so though not the highest point in that area, wherever you were in Palestine, you were said to go up to Jerusalem. Now, some want to see in this language of ascent, a foreshadowing of his ascent to the cross, but I would say that's probably reading too much into the statement, though it is true. But what is significant, and what I want you to notice here is this, that Jesus is going to Jerusalem intentionally. He's going there intentionally. Now, Mark 10.32, a parallel account, captures this with this striking historical note. He says that as they're along the road, as Jesus is walking along the road toward Jerusalem with his disciples, that Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was walking ahead of them. In other words, Jesus was taking the lead. He was going to Jerusalem resolutely. He was not going timidly. He was not going in fear. He had set his face toward Jerusalem and he was leading them there. Though he knows what lies in store for him. Jesus was intent about everything that he did. He did nothing out of fear but in perfect obedience to the Father. And in fact, I'll just mention this to you. This is the same resoluteness. This is the same intention of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only heading to Jerusalem, but as He was heading to meet His own betrayer. After His suffering prayer in the garden, in which He submitted Himself in a final display of His perfect submission to the Father's will to endure the cross, He said to His disciples who had fallen asleep, and He had to Wake up again. He said, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Most men would say, Let's run. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He knew the purpose for his coming, and he faced it with resoluteness. He faced it with intentionality. 
Now Mark also notes for us in chapter 10.32 that as they were going along and Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem, that in fact the disciples were amazed and those that were following them, so some among the crowds that were around him, were fearful. Now the crowds were afraid because they understood that something significant was about to happen. They understood something significant was about to take place. It was on the horizon. They had witnessed the mounting hostility of the leadership against Jesus. They were continually in awe at the authority and the wisdom of his teaching. They were continually amazed at the works of power that displayed his glorious person. And so they knew that whatever was going to take place in Jerusalem would be significant. And so there was a sense of sobriety. They were fearful. The disciples, on the other hand, were amazed because of his resoluteness, because they also understood even with greater clarity the danger that laid ahead before them in Jerusalem. They understood the Jewish leadership centered in this city of God was against him and that this was going to mean certain trouble. Now, in order to understand this, we're going to have to step out of Matthew just for a bit and go back in time to John chapter 11. Go ahead and turn over there. John chapter 11. I'm just going to breeze through this, but... I want you to see this. John chapter 11. Chapter you're familiar with. This is sometime at the end of his Galilean ministry. He's still in the land of Perea. But it is before his final move to Judea. Now John 11 then records the significant event of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it was that event that was the final straw that settled the determination of the Jewish leadership to put Jesus to death. Now, just prior to chapter 11, Jesus made a startling claim to his divinity in chapter 30. I and the Father are one. At this statement, it says in verse 31 that the Jews picked up stones to kill him, to stone him. They wanted to put him to death for what in their mind was the ultimate blasphemy. And then in verse 39 of chapter 10, it says as they were seeking again to seize him... He eluded their grasp, and then in verse 40, that he simply went somewhere beyond the Jordan to where John was baptizing. And as he's there, he gets news in verse 3 of chapter 11 of the death of his friend Lazarus. And so after hearing this news, he stays for an additional couple of days because he wants to make the reality of Lazarus' death even more clear. And so he stays And then after these two days, he says in verse 7 of chapter 11 to his disciples, let us go to Judea again, to which they respond in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Are you crazy? Don't you know that they want to put you to death? Don't you know that they want to see you dead? Now that's humanly understandable, but it lacks faith. So Jesus instructs them in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is in him. Although, excuse me, the light is not in him. So essentially, Jesus is telling them, Look, if you are in the will of God, don't fear the consequences. Nothing will come upon you that God has not ordained and is not sovereignly watching over. Now, to their credit, in verse 16, uh, through the lips of Thomas, they were willing to go and die with him. It says in verse 16, Thomas, 
who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So there was some faith here. They did have some comprehension of what they were getting into. And so after this, Jesus headed to the region of Judea. And along his way, he meets Martha, whom he encourages with the reality in verse 25 that he is the resurrection and the life. And he goes from there then to the tomb where Lazarus has lain dead for four days in verse 39. And once there, he brings him back to life, standing in front of the tomb and simply crying out with the command, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gloriously came forth before all of the watching crowds. Now, what was the result of this? Well, there was amazement at the power of God. And verse 45 tells us that many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. They believed in him. But that wasn't the response of everyone. He immediately follows that in verse 46 to say, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which had been done. Instead of coming to faith, they went off to tell the leadership about the things that this man was doing. They must have thought at some point in their mind that these things are dangerous. And so what did the leadership do? Verse 38. If we let him go on like this, or 48. If we let him go on like this, all the men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were in fear. What's going to come about for us as a nation because of this man who is arousing the attention of the Romans. So what do they do? Well, in verses 49 through 52, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, stands and makes an unwitting prophecy about Christ atoning death. He says in verse 50, Do you not take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? And so what did they do? Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. They planned together to kill him. Jesus was displaying the glory of God. He was displaying his power as Messiah. The pinnacle of all of his miracles is this dramatic event of raising Lazarus from the dead. And what did the leadership want to do? Kill him. We've got to get rid of this guy. Everybody's going to follow him. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. That's the background. The leadership has determined to put him to death. They have determined that they are out to get him. And the disciples understand this to a great degree. And they understand that going to Jerusalem then means danger. Nonetheless, Jesus resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem where he knows he will meet his death. And look at verse 18. It's not only... Jesus, but this is also going to include the disciples. Look what he says. He tells them, behold, we are going to Jerusalem. We are going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going together. He's not going to do it alone. He's going to his death, and they must follow him there. Although they won't die, in fact, at that time, one will betray him, and the rest will scatter and leave him alone humanly. But nonetheless, they are called to follow him and trust him with the results. So he's going to Jerusalem and the disciples must go to Jerusalem. And here then is the demonstration of his perfect submission to the Father. His perfect submission to the Father. I want you to notice something else briefly here. 
that he is our example by being the gracious shepherd to his people. The gracious shepherd to his people. Look back at verse 17, the middle part there. It says that he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and then on the way he said to them, and he reveals what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And this is precious. This is really precious. And we don't want to read over these things. And I want to note this just briefly. But this is a tender picture of Jesus as not only the sovereign shepherd of the disciples, but our own sovereign shepherd. He knows the confusion that is going to take place in the mind of these disciples. He understands that the events that are going to take place are going to turn their world upside down. Everything that they imagine about the kingdom is going to be exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. It's going to throw them into chaos and confusion. And he knows that. And so he removes them from the crowds that are around them and he pulls them aside by themselves, which is mentioned by all of the synoptic writers. Apparently, again, there is this crowd following them, but he singles out the twelve, and interestingly, the first time he uses this title as a designation of them, even though it right now it included Judas. But he singles them out. He singles them out. Why does he do that? Well, he wants to prepare them. He wants to prepare them. He wants to prepare them to understand the events that are coming, but listen... He wants to prepare them not so much about the events before they happen, although that is certainly part of it, but he wants to prepare them for the events so that they will understand them after they happen. In other words, after he is taken away, after he dies and is risen from the grave. Now Luke 18.34 tells us that at the end of all of these things Jesus is telling them, they still had no clue They didn't comprehend anything that Jesus had just said. It was too far out of their purview of their understanding of the kingdom. And yet Jesus tells them, because he knows he needs to prepare them, not only before they happen, but after these events happen, to give them understanding. In fact, there are many things Jesus told them that they did not understand during his earthly ministry and that they would not understand until after the resurrection. We won't go through all of them. But Jesus repeatedly said that you don't understand what I'm doing now, whether it be washing their feet, whether it be talking about destroying this temple and building it up in three days or whatever. He said you won't understand it now, but you will understand it afterwards. You will understand when the Son of Man rises from the dead. And so that's also what's going on here in these instructions. After the resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they would remember these things that Jesus had told them and they would have confidence in the sovereign plan of God. His gracious shepherding here then is seen to encompass not only these present events and the ones that are coming, but He's providing for them understanding and confidence even after He is taken away. And for us too, as we are reminded in His foretelling these events that everything is under the sovereign hand of God. He's gently shepherding them. The greatest example, of course, of his shepherding would be the sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself for his people. John 10 verse 12 says that he who is a hired hand sees the wolf coming and does what? Flees. Sees the wolf coming and flees. Not so with Jesus, because he loves the sheep. He loves his people 
He loves those whom God had sovereignly given to him, those he came to purchase. And so instead of fleeing from the danger that he knows is coming upon him, instead of running away from the trouble and the certain suffering that he will have to endure, he faces it and he gives himself over to those who would destroy him, but he does it for his own people. He says in John 10, 11, For the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He's totally submitted to the will of the Father. He's a demonstration of the perfect shepherd of his people where everybody else failed. He would not fail. But let's notice lastly here, and we'll spend more time on this. He's our example, and he, in the accomplishment of our salvation, in his suffering for the sin of his people. Look back at verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered or handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised again. Now this is the most detailed of all of the passion narratives or predictions. And this is the very heart of his ministry. This is the reason that he came to suffer for the sins of his people. He came to suffer in their place. And this is the essential element of his ministry that the disciples and the nation, for that matter, did not understand. Again, it was just too far outside of their thinking at this point. But I want to suggest to you that they should have understood it. They should have understood it certainly more than they did. Though not every detail, they should have had a better idea of the suffering of Messiah. They should have had a better clue of what he was saying to them. And let me give you at least three reasons why. At least three reasons why they should have been better prepared for this statement. First of all, because of the sacrificial system. Because of the sacrificial system. The idea of sacrifice for sin goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We saw it in Genesis 3.21 when God made a covering for Adam and Eve after they sinned against Him. We see sacrifice in Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and so on. But the sacrificial system which came under the Mosaic Covenant was a nearly 1,500 year reminder to the people of God about the reality of their sin. The whole priesthood, the whole temple, the whole sacrifices were meant to display before them constantly that God is holy and sinners cannot approach Him on their own. But it was also a reminder of His sovereign grace that He initiated and supplied a substitute for His people. By means of the death of an animal, their sins could be atoned for and they could approach God. And they should have, they should have understood that more deeply than they're demonstrating Every time that the worshiper came in the Old Covenant and laid their hands on the sacrificial animal and confessed their sins and slayed the animal and gave it to the priest to offer up to go through all of the prescriptions for that sacrifice, it should have been a constant reminder to them that their sin demands death. And yet God has graciously, graciously provided a substitute. But the problem is this. The true Israelite knew that the blood of bulls and goats never took away their sin. They understood that. They understood that the blood of bulls and goats of itself was never able to take away sin. That's what David said, Psalm 51, 16. The blood of bulls and goats, you don't desire those things, but a broken 
and a contrite heart. The writer of Hebrews says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, he says later, to make the worshiper clean in conscience. That's why they had to offer them every day. That's why they had the yearly reminder because though the righteous Jew understood that there was grace in repentance, they knew that was never the final sacrifice. And so they had to be continually reminded of it, continually bringing their sacrifice. And that system should have made them long for everything that Christ was. But as we know, it had been so clouded over by self-righteousness and self-justification that it failed to have the effect that God designed it for. A second reason they should have understood, because of prophecy, because of prophecy, God gave enough clues that suffering would be in some measure and in some way a part of the ministry of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Jesus told His disciples after His resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, He said to them, All things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And then He said, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer to enter into His glory? And then he began with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and all of the Old Testament to explain to them why that had to take place. And so there are many, many prophetic anticipations of the death and suffering of Christ. Zechariah 12.10 speaks of the one who was pierced for them, clearly referring to God. Psalm 22, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Exodus 12 and the Passover Lamb and on and on and on was a picture of the suffering that was to come because of their sin and be associated with the ministry of Messiah. However, none so clearly pictures this ministry of the Lord than Isaiah 53. Let me note to you and remind you of some verses. There some of these anticipations... He said of his people of Israel, one was going to come, this servant. He was to be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One like, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He says, he are, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings we were healed. And he goes on. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He talks about his oppression. That he was silent before his persecutors. That he did not open his mouth. He was taken away in oppression and judgment. And that his generation would consider him cut off from the land of the living because he was despised by God. That he would be crushed by the Lord who was pleased to put him to death. That he would render himself as a guilt offering. That because of the anguish of his soul, God would see it and be satisfied and he would justify the many. Now Jewish exegetes for centuries have tried to get around the clear statements of Isaiah 53 by saying that the one suffering there is in fact the nation of Israel and not an individual. But that clearly cannot be the case for many reasons. The primary one being that this sufferer is doing so on behalf of whom? Israel. Israel. It's one suffering for Israel. And yet, besides the fact that that is so plain and obvious 
the reason that the fact that they don't get it just shows the willful blindness of God's people, their refusal to recognize that aspect of Messiah's ministry. They simply would not go there, although God had made that clear. Let me give you a third reason they should have understood this. It's because of the reality of their sin, because of the sacrificial system, because of the prophecy, and because of the reality of their sin. They should have felt the burden of it. Again, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that, look, these sacrifices never were able to make the worshiper clean in conscience. Never. It was never a final sacrifice, only the reminder of sins. And they should have been burdened with that reality. They should have been burdened with that reality. But as we've said before, the one reason, one essential reason why Israel doesn't and didn't recognize their Messiah is because they simply did not grasp the reality of their sin. They didn't get it. The idea of a crucified Messiah then was too far outside of their thinking. And so what did they do? They created their own version of Messiah. A version of Messiah, a version of Messiah that rewarded them for their righteousness and who was focused only on their own end and glory. They created a false Messiah. And so when the true one showed up, they didn't recognize him. In fact, they refused to recognize him. And let me suggest to you that this indictment could also be made against much of the professing church who has created a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture. And when the real Jesus shows up through the preaching of Him, or if the real Jesus shows up when He comes to establish His justice on the earth, they're not going to recognize Him. He'll be unrecognizable to them. Let me suggest to you that it's also... The reason, in other words, the a lack of understanding of sin is also the reason that there's so much triviality in Christianity, so much superficiality, treating as light those things that should be sober truths to us. They're, it's what produces much false doctrine. And it's the reason, let me suggest to you, that there's so much weakness in our own lives because we don't grasp the depth of the gospel and so it was for the people here. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the reality of their sins, so they didn't recognize it. And here Jesus is before them, his disciples, and before us, and he's saying, Look, I am that sacrifice. I am that sacrifice. I'm the final sacrifice. And somewhere in their hearts, somewhere in their conscience, that should have resonated with them, it should have connected somewhere. But at this point, it didn't. It didn't. But in either case, Jesus is going to lay before them what he will suffer on their behalf, that he must suffer for their sin and our sin. And this is truly devastating. Let's notice next then that it was a sovereign suffering. It was a sovereign suffering. Look what he says. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and then later he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Son of Man identifies Him as Messiah. It is a title that speaks of both His deity and is a title that speaks of His humanity. He is the perfect Son of the Father in the flesh. He is the perfect man. He is the second Adam. He is the King of Israel. He is the Son of David. And yet, He says He will be handed over. Now notice in verse 18. 
The text mentions that twice. In verse 18, in the New American Standard, it's translated as delivered. It's the same term in the original. It speaks of being handed over, of being given over. Now notice the second use in verse 19 is plural. And the subject there is clearly the Jews. Clearly the Jews that are going to hand him over to the Romans. However, the first usage is in the singular. And the subject is not named. And so some suggest here that this is a divine passive. That God is the subject of the verb. But I would suggest to you that while that is true, it is Judas who is here the subject of this verb. And yet that does not, outside of the reality that God is sovereign over all of these events, there need not be such a sharp line drawn. Matthew will use this verb ten times in the account of the Passion to speak of Judas' handing over Jesus to the Jews. But the fact is that both Judas and the Jews acted under the sovereign hand and the predetermined plan of God. So what we see on display is both the wicked heart of man and the eternal purposes of God. As with all of God's sovereignty, there is also human responsibility. Judas chose to portray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 12 anticipated that. Jesus said it had to happen because Scripture needed to be fulfilled. In other words, God is sovereign, and yet it was the wickedness of His own heart for which He will be eternally held accountable that caused Him to hand over the Savior. The Jews gave Him a mock trial, and they handed Him over to the Romans, and they are fully culpable for that, even though it happened exactly as Scripture anticipated that it would happen. Pilate handed Him over to his soldiers to be crucified. He is fully culpable for that. That would happen exactly as God anticipated that it would. So God is divinely sovereign over all of these events. All of them. And that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand. He repeatedly reminded them, even in the midst of all of these events, that everything is happening according to Scripture. Should not the Scripture be fulfilled? It has to be fulfilled. He who is the very embodiment of the law. We won't turn there for time, but Peter repeatedly affirmed this in Acts. Wicked men gathered up against the Holy One of Israel, but according to the predetermined plan of God. Acts 2 and Acts 4. And this is crucial for us to understand because he warned uh, them and he warns us that the same is going to be true. It's not like the handing over is going to stop when they hand over the Messiah. He told them in Matthew 10, guess what? They're going to hand you over too. And they're going to hand you over before the leaders of the synagogue. And guess what? Your family is going to hand you over. Brothers and sisters and children are going to hand over their parents. This is the nature of sin. And it's important for us to understand the sovereignty of God in these events, even as it was for them. So it's a sovereign suffering, but I want you to notice secondly here that it's complete suffering. And this is tragic. This is absolutely tragic. He is rejected and killed by both Jews and Gentiles. Everyone, everyone rejected him. He's handed over first to the chief priest and to the scribes. These who were the spiritual leaders of his own covenant people. It's like being handed over by your own children. Such is the depth of their sin and the grief that this caused him. They who should have loved him hated him the most. These who should have embraced him as their God rejected him as the most despicable heretic and they condemned him to death, he tells us in verse 18. 
They condemned him to death. And that is an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. It just stops me in my tracks when I read that. They will condemn him to death. Let me suggest to you two things about this. First of all, in that statement, there is the very essence and the end of all of sin. All of sin. The root of every sin is rebellion against God. And let me suggest to you this, that every sin allowed to run its course to its end would destroy God himself. It is rebellion against the most holy one. Stephen Charnock in Existence and Attributes of God said this, and he said it well. Let me read it to you. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart. An aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, but virtually. Not in the intention of every sinner, but in the nature of every sin. That affection which excites a man to break his law would excite him to annihilate his being if it were in his power. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. And could a sinner attain this end, God would be destroyed. End quote. So what they're displaying here is really the most reasonable end of every sin, the destruction of God Himself. And here, His people are the ones doing it. Notice secondly then about this statement, the incredible irony, the incredible irony that's here. They in sin are killing and condemning the very one they're sinning against. They are assigning the very penalty of their own sin to to the one who established that penalty. What did God say in the garden? The day that you eat of the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, what happens? You will die. You'll die. Death is the result of sin. Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. And here he is, they're enacting that very penalty he established on himself. And their condemnation of him to death, he's bearing their own condemnation and the condemnation of his people. And they're afflicting the curse of the law on him, he's bearing the curse of the law for them. While they're breaking the covenant, he is fulfilling the covenant. Read the statement this way. They, God's chosen people, condemned by the very law He gave, Him, their own God in flesh, to death to suffer His own penalty for their sin. Incredible, incredible irony. And He is handed over first to the Jewish leaders who condemn Him, and second, He's handed over to the Gentiles who will carry out that condemnation and put Him to death. Now, the Jews had four primary means of capital punishment. Stoning, burning, beheading, and strangling. However, Roman law did not allow them to put a criminal to death. Now, there were threats of stoning, and perhaps they could have done that. But by legal proceeding, they could not enact capital punishment. And so here, the Jews hand him over to the Gentiles so that they would do that. And yet, it's not simply death. Look at what he says. He describes what... Purpose or end they're handing him over for. Verse 19, to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. Here the nation that is to be the light of the nations is handing over the light of the world to the Gentiles to be killed. That he would die in the most ignoble and shameful way. 
You're well aware that a Roman citizen was not permitted by law to be crucified because of the shamefulness of such a death. And think of this. Yet here is the Son of Man, the Creator Himself, who will subject Himself to a shameful death that is beneath the dignity even of a Roman criminal. And yet that's what He does. And the shame and the horror of it goes even deeper. He says He will be mocked. This has the basic idea of being ridiculed or made fun of. The Gentiles mocked Him as the King of the Jews. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked Him as He hung on the cross and they ridiculed Him. No doubt they did so with the smug scorn and hatred that could not be satisfied with His death alone. They had to make it as painful as possible. And so not only did they have Him crucified, but they shamed Him to the best of their ability. Mark and Luke will add that they spit on Him and that they mistreated Him. And they scourged Him as the basic idea of being beat with a whip. Now there's two kinds of whipping in the New Testament that employ the same term. There's the whipping of the Jews that took place in the synagogues. It was a flogging. It was a, a whip that had four leather straps and the Victim was taken in the synagogue, sometimes tied to a pillar, sometimes bent over, sometimes accounts of them cowering. And they were beat for their crime. There were three people who did it. One who recited texts of judgment from the law. Another counted the blows and a third administered them. According to 2 Corinthians 11.24 and Josephus, the Jews subtracted one of these, making it 39. Forty were prescribed in the law. They did 39 so that they would not be in danger of breaking the law of God. Now, some deaths are reported, although those are unusual. It was more painful than life-threatening. But that's not the kind of scourging that he's talking about here. There was a second kind of scourging that uses this same word, and it was the scourging that took place under Roman penalty and Roman punishment. It's known by the Latin term verberatio. This is the type of scourging that Jesus is referring to here. And it was a much more severe whipping, sometimes prescribed before crucifixion. And because of its gruesome nature, often caused the death of the victim before a crucifixion. And in that way, it was often viewed as a mercy to them because it lessened the pain of the cross. This whip consisted of leather straps that often contained chips of bone or other material to lacerate the flesh. Regarding the number of strokes, there was no limit, but one has noted it continued until the flesh hung down in bloody shreds. Pilate had Jesus undergo this beating, most likely for the purpose of causing pity among the crowds, that they would see that and then not take Barabbas the criminal instead and let Jesus go free. Of course, that was in vain. In Isaiah 52, 14, that text may suggest that his appearance was so marred and so disfigured by the blood and by the beating that he had endured up to that point that he was hardly recognizable even as a human being. Next he says he would be crucified. Torturous death by being impaled to a large beam of wood extended vertically from the ground with large metal spikes. The Roman general Titus during the siege of Jerusalem, in which he crucified countless Jews, described it as the most wretched of deaths. It's commonly understood that Jesus was crucified on the kind of cross that is behind us here, although there were other kinds. Some were shaped in the form of an X and other configurations. As a matter of fact, during the siege of Jerusalem, when they crucified the many Jews there, 
the Roman soldiers were given free reign and they were, as a joke, would put the prisoners or the victims on the cross in all kinds of distorted positions just as a sadistic joy. So here he is on the cross. While there his hands were likely tied as well as nailed to the beams with a plank that was sometimes under their hips and at the bottom of their feet to keep the nails from ripping straight through the flesh as it bore all of their weight. And yet as severe as this was, the victim did not die from the wounds of the nails, but rather died from suffocation. As they hung on the cross, the weight bearing down on their lungs made it difficult to breathe to expand the lungs. And so what would happen is in excruciating pain, they would have to put pressure on their feet to lift up take in a breath, and then let it back down. And sometimes this could go on in agony for days. And it's for this reason then that the Romans would often hasten the death of the victim by doing what? Breaking their legs. Why? Because they couldn't push themselves up anymore and they would finally suffocate and die. That's what they did to the two criminals next to Jesus, although they did not do that to Jesus because of prophecy that his legs would not be broken and he had already given up his spirit. That was, in fact, anticipated in the very picture of the Passover lamb. Now, as gruesome as this death was, and more details could be added, this was not the worst part of the crucifixion, as we know. The descriptions can only go so far at looking at it from the outside. And in this sense, you could portray that accurately even through film. Some of you have seen The Passion, and that probably is an accurate description to a large degree of what it looked like externally on the outside. However, the greater suffering cannot be caught on film nor truly grasped by us. This is the inner suffering he endured, not only of having been rejected by his creation, his covenant people, abandoned by his closest friends, and betrayed by one of his closest companions, and then publicly humiliated in the most shameful way. But even more than all of those things, there is the inner torture of soul he endured for three long hours on the cross, at the end of which he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the anguish of soul that the Father caused and was pleased to cause, as Isaiah told us. It is the anguish of soul that the Father saw and was satisfied with to have met the demand of the law's curse for sinners. On the cross then that Jesus was made sin for us. That means that while Jesus was on the cross, He was in the eyes of God during that time the very embodiment of sin. And God unleashed his displeasure and the curse of the law on him as if Jesus were guilty of it all. Of course, he wasn't. That's what allowed him to be a substitute. But in that suffering, Jesus would bear the sins of his people far away. And this is what Jesus is anticipating here. And Jesus knows that these things are coming upon him. He knows what it is that is going to take place. And the disciples didn't get it fully, but they would later. It's the suffering that makes his submission to the will of the Father and his shepherding heart all the more glorious and amazing. And it's the suffering for us that like nothing else demonstrates his grace and his holiness and his love, his sovereign love for sinners. Now look at the end of verse 19. And we can praise God that the verse does not end in his suffering and death but is in his victorious resurrection. He's not left on the cross like we see in so many Catholic churches. He's off the cross. He's off the cross. And it says, On the third day He will be raised up. On the third day He will be raised up. 
In the words of Peter during his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's what's expressed in the words that we so often sing. Death could not hold him. The chains could not keep him from rising again. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming, O glorious day. It is the words of Paul when he said he was delivered over because of our transgression and he was raised because of our justification. His sacrifice was accepted, it was authenticated, it was complete, and all who know him by faith, by repentant faith, and are in him forgiven, will reign with him in his eternal kingdom forever in unceasing fellowship and joy with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit and with all of the redeemed for all eternity. And beloved, that's us. That's you and me. That's you and me that he did that for. And that's what we celebrate this morning in the Lord's table. Let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts as we seek to remember this sovereign one together as his people and his sacrifice for us. I will pray. And then Ruth will begin playing. Use that time as the men hand out the elements as a time to fellowship with the Lord. Confess any sin that you need to deal with before you would unworthily take of the table. But for those who know Him and who are walking in obedience with Him, meditate on His great love for you displayed at the cross and renew your commitment to Him in love and worship. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for what you have done for us and for our salvation. We thank you for the gift of your Son. May we cherish him as he is worthy to be cherished. May we love him as he is worthy to be loved. May we hate our sin that is still in us as we seek faltering and failing so often to live out our love for him. But that's why we remember this morning that it is by grace that we stand before you. It is not our futile and incomplete and works, but it is the grace of Jesus Christ that enables us to stand forgiven and have the hope that we do. I pray that for us who knew him, you would remind us of these things even in our own hearts as we worship you in the table. For those who may have sin that they are unwilling to deal with, but are your children, I pray that you would convict them even now and they would come clean and confess and repent. And for those who don't know you, who are empty of the true affection that identifies a child of God, who are empty of the true love for Christ and your truth that is the necessary mark of the redeemed, that you would convict them even today of that and bring them to faith in Christ. We offer this time to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.